Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Today I'm joined by Amy Scheffler, who is a partner at Retina Consultants of Houston, Jay Sridhar, who is a uh, faculty member at the Baskin-Palmer Eye Institute and host of Straight from the Cutter's Mouth podcast, and the venerable Steve Charles from the Charles Retina Institute in Germantown, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. I'm John Kitchens, your host, and today is August 18th, and we have 22 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide with 777,000 deaths in the world, 5.5 million cases here in the United States, and 171,000 deaths in the United States. So obviously we are in the midst of a uh, pandemic and one state represented by our panelists has been hit probably harder than any other outside of the East Coast and that would be Texas. Amy, tell me what is the status of things in Houston, Texas? Hey John, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so we uh, were certainly one of the states uh, hit the hardest, obviously, in the beginning. Um, and um, within the state of Texas, Houston was also the hardest hit. Just in the last two weeks, our numbers um, have started to plateau and actually fall. Um, and we're at about um, six and a half percent um, positivity rate, um, testing rate within patients tested in the hospital setting in the Texas Medical Center, which is the biggest medical center in the country. So 6% is not bad. We were at 25% about four to six weeks ago. So it's getting better, but you know, not down to zero yet. What do you attribute for that decreasing rate, Amy? Are people really adopting masks, social distancing, um, or is there something else that you can attribute to that dramatic decline? It's super interesting, John, actually. I, um, what I have seen, and this is, this is not a study, but just anecdotally, um, within kind of socially, the community I live in, is that um, adherence to masking and social distancing compared to areas like the East Coast and California is poor, actually. Um, and that may be, you know, cultural or regional or, or whatnot. So the truth is, I'm not actually sure why the numbers have gone down. But I think from what I've read, one of the factors may be um, that kind of is just starting to emerge as potentially real data is that there's almost starting to be like this partial herd immunity theory, um, because the numbers of cases are very high within certain communities, enough so that it's affecting, you know, the rate at which the virus can can spread. So you're basically saying like within certain communities in and around Houston, you're having higher transmission rates, getting herd immunity in those smaller communities. And then there are other areas where people are relatively unaffected. That's right. Because they don't tend to overlap. They're not transmitting. That's COVID. exactly right. That's exactly Houston right. And there've been a couple a, of really interesting art papers about this. Yeah. Interesting. Houston's such a major medical center city center with so many hospital beds. Have you ever come close in Houston to running out of beds? There's been rumors about hospitals that have been on overflow and stuff like that. What's been the status at its worst in Houston? Right, it's a great question. So I think the, the mainstream media, um, most of the numbers that were kind of being broadcast about this were focused on ICU beds that were standard ICU beds, right? Like the way the hospital looked a year ago. But they very quickly turned a lot of, um, you know, regular floors into new ICUs or converted, let's say, cardiac ICUs into COVID ICUs. And by do making those switches without even having one of those 
military ambulatory hospitals um, or, or units, they easily met capacity and never went over. So that That's like great. surge bed capacity thing you would read about, we never actually even had to do that, at least in Houston. That's fantastic. Jay, you're in a similar situation. Florida is another very hard hit state uh, with COVID-19. No place harder hit than Miami. What, what are things like on the ground in Miami? You know, John, it's fascinating what we've seen. I think in March and April, most of the country, including Miami, shut down. And our cases existed at that point, but really not at the same rates as we saw, for example, in New York. And I think that's true for most of the country, including Texas, Amy was just referencing. We reopened in a sense where things kind of opened up. Schools didn't open, but a lot of workplaces started opening. The restrictions started dropping in May and June. And then we really had to kick up in cases in late June and July. And it's interesting because I think one of, we've learned a lot about COVID-19 in the last six months, seven months. And one of the things that was surmised or presumed or people speculated was, what, well, is there a warm weather protection that exists? And I think that unfortunately that fed into maybe not optimal social distancing practices, especially in Miami's world famous nightlife. And that I think really drove a lot of this was, you know, a lot of young people, um, a lot of people coming in and out of the city from for travel and tourism. And we really had a kick up in cases in July and August. And I'll tell you, it it's still, it's a little eerie sometimes. Um, Miami is usually famous for its traffic. It's not Los Angeles, but it's pretty bad. That traffic has not been there for months, which is a good thing, but it's a little eerie, you know, how empty things feel. Schools would normally be starting now. Miami public schools are, are not open. Some private schools do have a home or versus going to school option, a virtual option versus going to school, but most schools are not open. Um, the University of Miami started classes today. Uh, that's my alma mater. And the campus is a little bit dead because again, they gave students, some of them, the option to take their classes virtually. So the cases have sort of, like Amy said, there's sort of new cases have plateaued and slightly declined, but we're still seeing a few thousand new cases each day. Um, and I almost wonder a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of uh, there's still a lot of fear. I think that's the biggest thing I see with my patients. There's still a lot of fear, um, a lot of anxiety, and I would think it's appropriate. And that is driving a lot of what we're seeing in our practice patterns at Bascom Palmer, too. Interesting. Steve, Memphis is a, a city that's not often talked about nationally, but they have positivity rates of around 10 to 12 percent. How are things in Memphis from a just general COVID standpoint? couple things. Um, one is it's, it's of interest that you know, we're a red state uh, and, uh, and there's this uh, you know, anti-mask thing uh, going on, but I don't, I, it's not as obvious to me that it's occurring. We're, our, in short, our rates are very low compared to other parts of the country, and it's stunning in the context of being a, a red state uh, that it's a sort of a, you think of the anti-mask thing, and we have, you know, obesity rates. We're not number one, but uh, certainly Mississippi and, and Arkansas and Alabama that are close to us are, have significant obesity rates. You know, we're certainly in the top five, and you would think our numbers would be worse than they are, quite frankly. But we've never come close to running out of ICU beds or PPE or, or, or any of that. Uh, with respect to the practice, it, 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 our volumes dropped 50% uh, in the spring for about two months. Uh, and then they rolled back. I'm, did 21K, I'll do 21 vitrectomies this week. And, and it, there's a lot of, uh, you know, th precautions we have to do. Everybody has COVID testing before they go to the surgery center. And, uh, and as usual, there's the, the 
delay of four or five days. We now have it down to one day, or two, excuse me, two days in terms of COVID testing before they go to the surgery center. In the office, the, the, the problem is that um, we see a couple hundred patients, 200 patients a day between myself and the fellows and the colleagues. And, and uh, what do you do in the waiting room? So the, the parking lot is jammed with people with their air conditioners running in their car. And there's some funny things. The lady had a pickup truck and set up a picnic bench and a tent and other people would go over there and hang with her. And, but, but in short, you know, you're, you're calling people on their cell phone in for the workup, back out of the parking lot, in for imaging, back out of the parking lot, in for the doctor's exam, back in the parking lot, in for an injection. Because you keep the injection business going, you, you, we've done, and you know, you get kind of an experiment about what happens when you stop injecting wet AMD or DME, and and plenty of people, uh, you know, had recurrences uh, demonstrating the need to keep going. So, Steve, you're you're effectively using your parking lot as a waiting area even after dilation. Absolutely. They, they literally make three or four trips back and forth. So they might, uh, in, a, in a waiting room that'll handle 190 people, uh, it's a big waiting room. Um, we will typically have, you know, what, 20 in there, 25, even though we're seeing 200 a day. Um, and it's, we have special procedure rooms in the office. We don't inject in the exam rooms. So that's, a, then that's closed off area. But, uh, but the surgery center is across town in a different location. And uh, that's an eye surgery only. Uh, there's three operating rooms, and, and that works out really well. You know, Steve, you have kind of a national following of patients. I see patients here in Kentucky that you've operated on. Are you seeing a change in the travel dynamics? Do you see as many patients coming from outside of Memphis to have their surgeries, or has that not changed at all? No, no it's, cha it's changed. You're absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, we see less of that. Uh, I, it was a, there was a time years ago where 50% of my patients were from outside the state, and, uh, and not, not even in Arkansas or Mississippi that are bordering states, but, but it's, it's dropped down to maybe 10%. Now, it's basically mostly PBR reops or airline pilots that are 2025 with a lamellar macular hole that want surgery, that kind of thing. I, I see a tremendous amount of airline pilots because I fly a jet and I've kind of gotten known in that community. Jay, I'll come back to you because, by the way, Jay has to jump off here in about 15 minutes. Um, Jay Bascom is just such a complicated, large institution. How have they adapted to COVID-19? Yeah. There's some things that have been instituted and it'll be interesting to see when they roll out. So one of the very first things we instituted um, is their patients, family, and friends do not even enter the building. Um, now, obviously, if it's somebody who is not competent for decision-making, needs a family member, for example, um, to help them decision-making, a special situation, or a child, a minor, they can come accompanied with one person. But that's a big, big step towards improving social distancing. One of the very first things I remember doing is walking through the retina pods and saying, well, if we, how many chairs do we have and how much space can we really allocate? And it's one other thing we've done that's kind of helped us because there was a little bit of conversation. Well, how many patients do you book in a clinic? Like how, because we don't know what our show rates are going to be as people get, get fears. So one of the things we've done, which maybe other practices have done, but we hadn't really done as an institution is we started doing intake from the technicians the day before. And that accomplishes two things. One in, is that it speeds up the process once the patient comes in because most of the information's already been input in the, the, uh, the EMR. And then the tech is workup is very quick, just vision pressure and dilation for retina patients if necessary, and then they see the doctor. But the second hidden thing is when you call the patient, a lot of times you'll get an answer at that point. What, are they not coming in from because of COVID fears or are they going to come in? 
So your show rates are much more predictable. So for example, normally I would have a clinic, let's say 60 to 65 patients, and maybe the show rate would vary somewhere from 70 to 80%. Well, with coronavirus, that might be less. Now when we call the day before, that list maybe drops down to 45 patients, but we 45 of those patients are going to come in. And so that makes it a lot easier to kind of distribute those patients throughout the day and are, avoid Jay, are, are what they you really interrogated? don't want Jay, are they interrogated about insurance and date of birth and address and all that on that call? Yeah, so they fit, all that data is input, new patients or establish any updates. Everything is done during that call. The only things that the techs are doing when they come in are the actual things that you would do in person, which would be the actual examinations. And secretaries um, and make that call or, or techs? Technicians. So we have our technicians. So our technicians do our day. And then before they leave, so we're, we're stacking the front, front loading the clinics. And when, before they leave, the technicians are staying that extra hour and they're, they're each assigned a certain number of patients for the next day who are the patients they are going to work up the next day. And that was a, a, an idea by my colleague, Dr. Janet Davis, which was a fantastic idea because it's really sped up the process. And then no longer is there, are there bottlenecks at the technician or imaging side. Now all of a sudden you have more of a stream flow. And honestly, that's something that we may keep beyond COVID-19 because it's really sped things up. It's been a silver lining. Yeah, I was going to ask if that's something that you think you'll continue to do after we are through this. I think if we have the resources, which it seems we do, it's absolutely worth it from an efficiency perspective. And again, we don't know when we're going to be through this. Um, we don't know when this is going to end. So it was good at kind of a long-term planning to say, well, we want to be provide care for our patients. We want to generate enough revenue to keep the doors open and the lights on. And we also want to do it in a safe manner so people don't feel like they're at risk when they're here. And so it's a win-win across the board. And uh, everyone's been on board with it. The technicians also appreciate it because actually they don't really like sitting there and inputting that information with the patient sitting there in front of them. So it's a lot easier sometimes to get that information over the phone. Amy, you guys think things very well through in your clinic there in Houston. Um, what do you think you're doing now that we will continue after COVID-19? We were, I was actually just talking about this with some of my stuff today. I, I think the biggest change, to be honest, um, that won't go away for a long time maybe longer than we'd like is masking. So we, you know, as basic as that is, we started using really hardcore PPE very early. Um, we got our first shipment of N95s for all the docs and most of the staff the first week in March. And that was one of the things that helped us weather the storm and our volumes dipped actually very little compared to most places and we never closed. Um, and that has really become very much part of the rhythm of the practice. I mean, not a single person is in the doors without a mask on for one second of the whole day, that no one's permitted to eat in the office. They have to go eat outside. And I mean, there's really, it's, you know, it's a very strong masking culture, at least within the practice. And most, um, all of the physicians and many of the techs wear two masks actually, and every single patient has masked also. So, and I think that's gonna stay for a while, right? I mean, you know, certainly we know from the experience in, in certain parts of Asia where they've gone through SARS before and all these things, right? That it sort of becomes socially acceptable to wear a mask if you are sick. Um, and I think the masks will, and that, that may increase. And also I think the masks are really going to tail off as the whole vaccine issue gets itself worked out, you know, before it's fully distributed, before everyone's gotten it, when people don't feel totally confident about its, its efficacy and so forth. So I think that's actually the biggest thing. Amy, think, uh, and, oh, go ahead, Steph, Charles. No, yeah. I was going to just ask the question, do you think that people are going to accept a vaccine? If you've got mask pushback, and we've already had all this <laughs> uh, you know, vaccine pushback, and we've got people like Rand Paul, who's an ophthalmologist, saying he wouldn't vaccinate, uh, it's pretty, uh, that concerns me deeply. Right. I think it's a great, it's a, it's a serious concern. I agree. I agree. Um, 
in terms of the what Jay was talking about about the kind of the screening phone calls the day before that was we actually had that as part of our practice already before and I think it's definitely helpful but the the limit is a fair number of the people they call don't pick up the phone don't answer and then still show up for the appointment so there there's some limit to how or they don't have the card with them at that moment or whatever you know the insurance card or whatever but but it's definitely a helpful thing to do um yeah, yeah it, vaccine adherence is a huge problem no question it's funny you say that because what i've noted anecdotally and i have to go back and actually look at the data is the patients when they wrote they don't pick up the phone they actually usually don't show up that's usually a sign they're not going to come in and i've started mentally when i look at my schedule the day before saying well they didn't pick up the phone actually that probably means they're not coming um, and that's usually how it's worked out um, my, my, my question for amy or steve charles or john have you guys run into any issues where patients don't want to wear a mask inside the office um, we kind of at the door just hand out masks to everyone. And from what I've talking to our screeners, they haven't really gotten much pushback, but I've heard from colleagues at other locations, maybe sometimes there's some pushback from certain patients. Has anyone experienced that? We're okay. You know, I think the biggest thing I see is just improper wearing of masks. You know, you'll see people come in with the mask under their nose, they'll pull it down to talk, you know, and it's all these things that it takes some time to basically in a caring manner, explain to them, you're not doing this right. We need, to, you need to do this, but you got to put it in. It's for your own good. You know, like, Hey, we need to cover this nose up because you know, that's where coronavirus gets in and I don't want you to get coronavirus. And then they usually say, Oh, I, you're right. Oh, I keep forgetting that it falls down. Very few people, even though we have a handful of people that are, as Steve alluded to kind of these conspiracy theorists that, question coronavirus and question wearing masks and just seem to question everything. Um, the, most people are very willing to wear the masks. So Amy, let's talk a little bit about surgery. Are you doing COVID testing on all of your patients before surgery? So um, the policy at both our, uh, the hospital that I operate and some of my partners operate at and the main surgery center where many of my partners operate at is that you only need to do COVID testing if a patient needs general anesthesia. For MAC, um, it's not required. So uh, honestly, for the majority of, you know, routine retina cases, we don't end up having to do it. Um, you know, and I think a lot of controversy about whether that's the right policy, but it certainly makes things smoother um, in terms of, you know, delays and the test doesn't come back and so forth. Um, Has that I changed operate, since, since March? Have you guys you revised know, that policy or it's always been that policy? That's always been the policy. It's not our policy. It's the hospital's policy and the surgery center's policy. And they haven't changed it. Um, what has changed, and I think Steve alluded to this, is that the, the hospital's ability to run the rapid test has gotten better. So one of my two hospitals I operate at, you can get a rep. If the patient doesn't have it, they'll let you do a rapid test and it comes back in two hours. And that, that, you know, that doesn't screw up the day that badly. The other hospital takes seven hours. And so that's really not an option. Jay, what about a Baskin Palmer? What are you guys doing as far as preoperative testing? Yeah, so we, every patient going to surgery at Baskin Palmer itself needs a COVID swab test. And that's done either by a nurse, uh, if it's a normal daytime hour scheduled actually for these elective procedures, 24 to 48 hours before surgery. If it's an emergent case and it's after hours or rights or weekends, the physician in the emergency room will do that swab and we have a special room and equipment set up to do that. The question comes, what happens if someone swabs? The residents positive? are the COVID testers. You gotta love it. <laughs> yeah. So for, for or the fellows uh, in those cases, they they all know how to put on PPE and do it. Um, so what the question comes: What happens if a patient tests positive? And I've run into this issue twice with patients who have needed 
quote unquote urgent surgery, right? So, and, and weirdly enough, I'm one of the few people who's actually running this issue with an urgent case. You know, if it's an elective case, then the, the thought process is we give them instructions to quarantine. They may be an asymptomatic, we're considered an asymptomatic carrier. We give instructions to quarantine to have anyone close to them get tested. And then if they are gonna get retested, we give them at least two weeks, um, depending on the type of surgery they're waiting for. I had two patients. One was a retinal detachment um, who had already had a prior buckle. She was a young, young girl, so it was an inferior shallow detachment. She was actually a medical student. She tested positive after three or four weeks after working rotations in another state. This was very early on in the pandemic. And basically, I, I, we did two weeks. We waited two weeks. I taught her and her fiance who's a physician how to do their visual fields at home and kind of monitor what her field cut looked like. It didn't progress in those two weeks. So each day I would talk to her via text or phone. And in two weeks, she tested negative, And then we did this case at that point. Um, and it, it was two negative swaps to verify. So our policy is if you do test positive once, you need two negative swaps to verify given the increase, increase in sensitivity with the second swab. The second case was a little more complicated. It was a patient who tested positive, um, who had, again, a retinal detachment, it was MAC off, it, had, it was relatively chronic. So the question was, it's not really urgent, let's retest in two weeks. The issue was this was a patient who was persistently positive. And then sometimes would swap positive, the first swap negative with the first swab and then swap positive with the second one. And it really illustrated to me how long somebody can be positive swab. And this, this lady was positive swab for three months. At no point we had this risk, we had this conversation at each time, like, are we leaving vision on the table? Are we doing the right things here? Because we always had the option to go move our equipment to a special COVID room at the University of Miami Main Hospital and do the case there. And at some point, uh, it, at any point, it wasn't really urgent because she had been Mac off for some time and we had the conversation with her and she preferred to have her surgery at Baskin Palmer when she was negative. It took a full three and a half months for her to be swab negative. Wow. Uh, we thankfully have not run into the issue where we have something that's a Mac on and we have to make a decision. But in that situation, we are set up at the main hospital to take everything across. We have a room that's set up that for COVID, it's a negative pressure room. We take all the equipment um, and I've actually used um, we, this lady, even though she tested negative, we used a simulation of that equipment to get a sense of what it was. And I'll tell you, I feel a lot of admiration for those doctors who wear that PPE day in and day out because it was hot. It was, as, <laughs> you're wearing three layers, you're wearing two hats. The fellow and I both scrubbed in this case. She was negative at the point, but they wanted us to get a sense of what the protection you're talking about. Like you were wearing like the full papper suit yeah, with everything. The everything because Can they wanted like, to get your head in the scope with that thing you you can't i had a shield too so it was tricky it's actually that is not as bad as i thought it would be i thought that would be worse and if you talk to people like at least almost the coups talked about in seattle or people who have done more of these cases it's actually not that bad what really gets to you is the heat at some point and they warned me before to make sure i had zero layers under my scrubs because you that was a pro tip because otherwise you are just going to sweat and sweat and sweat these rooms are really hot um, and we did it as a dry run just to see how the staff handle it, how the doctors handle it. And we did a buccal vitrectomy. And I'll tell you, we did a very good case. She's doing great post-op. But I've never been in a situation where I'm just like, we just need to move. We just need to keep going because there is diminishing returns here in terms of our ability and the staff's ability to function given this environment. And again, maybe ophthalmologists, retina specialists, we're not as strong as some of our colleagues in other fields, but a lot of admiration because <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks. Okay, that's, that's some great insights. I know you got to run, Jay. Everybody should check out straight from the cutter's mouth that Jay releases weekly or sometimes twice a week. Um, thank you, Jay, for joining us. Steve and Amy, hang on the line. Steve, with you and preoperative testing, how do you do it? What do you do? 
do patients need to have a negative COVID test before you'll take them to the operating room? Yes, we do. And that's a requirement of the surgery center. And uh, so that's 100% of the patients, whether they're local uh, MAC or, or general anesthesia. And, uh, and the, the problem was delay. Uh, it, as I said, it took five days and now it's down to maybe two days. We, we don't have it as fast as Amy pointed out. We can't get it within hours. So we do have to have some logistics. We are now for patients, for, you asked me before about patients from out of town, we now are accepting data from out of town as long as the patient quarantines. On the, I've operated in a couple of positions that said, hey, I'm going to drive down there with just my wife in the car. And, and I say, look, you know, don't go in a restaurant, you know, eat, eat a sandwich in the car or something and we'll trust you. But you know, it takes a special patient to, to really quarantine once they test elsewhere and then transport to Memphis. Steve, do you think that we're going to have a second wave of this, or do you think it's just going to be one continual first wave? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, this, the, the whole school thing makes a tremendous amount of complexity. Uh, the, the, the pressure on the environment, in spite of the stock market performing well, is just, I don't mean the environment, I mean on the economy, it's just extraordinary. How do you do child care? Something like 10% of child care uh, is open in America. What, what, what do you do with the kids? So uh, the, all those social pressures uh, are very real. And, and, and I think that, uh, and I, I don't think people are going to take masks seriously for a while. There's still going to be a cover. Look, look what happened in Sturgis. 250,000 people are standing around in bars all day long, like that party in Dallanega Saturday night with you know hundreds of kids partying without masks on, you know five inches apart or less, and uh, and so I'm I'm very concerned. But but I don't know whether it's going to take off. I don't think anybody knows or just hang at this level. I mean, uh, it's very concerning. The, the political aspect of this is, is makes me ill, quite honestly, to think about it, that this has become controversial about wearing a mask. I mean, what controversy should, I mean, I just don't get it. it you know, put on a mask, save your life, save everybody else's life, save your mother's, grandmother's life, put a mask on and uh, wear it over your nose, like you say. But I'm constantly like you having to point out to patients that, hey, cover your nose. No, don't take your mask off when you come to the slit lamp. You know, obviously we have the plastic guards there, but they, I say, I'm not a dentist. I will not check your teeth. When I say open up, I don't mean your mouth. I mean your eyes. It's, it's funny, but I'm old, so I can lecture them like, a, you know, like an old school teacher telling them what to do. So. <laughs> and Amy, having, having seen it kind of at its <laughs> maximum in Houston, can it get worse? It's a good question. Uh, you know, you know, perhaps because, like Steve said, I live in a red state. Even when it was at its worst, we were still very, very busy. We, I mean, at least you know, in the work setting, we never shut down. And we honestly, really, the lowest we dipped was about sixty-eight percent of normal. So, I can't see it getting that much worse than it was at like the height of the fear factor kind of in, you know, late March, early April, because the policies and kind of precautions that are kind of happening on the county and state level, at least here, don't seem like they're going to change based on what our rates are. But, you know, that's a local open? dynamic. What about public schools, Amy? Right. It's a great question. So, you know, I think these are micro dynamics, right? They vary from community to community, but here, the Houston uh, public school system 
their current plan is to open in October. And sadly, they are doing nothing from now till then, like barely any digital virtual because they just have, you know, really limited resources. Terrible. I think they're doing maybe one hour a day. I mean, it's bad. The private schools or many of them are under extreme pressure from the parents to open, you know, in person. So what many of them are doing is virtual for like a week or two and then planning on opening. So we'll see. Is that going to make rates go up? You would think so. But look what happened at UNC. You know, UNC opened yeah. up look and then closed right, back down. Right, right. Alabama. I, mean, I just saw that in Memphis, there was a high school, private, private school that actually now has just gone into um, uh, closure because they had 12 students in their first week that tested positive. There in Memphis, I didn't even know that. I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, but but the private schools opened yesterday, and the and the county schools and and uh, city schools did not. The private schools opened live or virtual. Live. Well, some combination wow. thereof. But there, you know, mm -hmm. I saw probably half as many cars on the campus. I drive by three uh, private schools on my way to work in the morning, and uh, I was it's just shocking to see that many cars in the parking lot again. Wow. And is the childcare a big issue for, for you, Amy, as far as your employees are concerned? Are you having to do something right. different with your employees because of that? Right. It's a great question. So I thought it was going to be a huge issue, and I, I or pretty early in March, I I had our staff send, you know, our clinic managers send out kind of like a survey to see who was just going to drop off the map. And it turned out to be very little. It was like six or 7% of our staff. But now I'll come to find months later, what a lot of them are doing, which is pretty upsetting, is they're just leaving their kids home alone. I mean, one of the people who runs one of our clinics, she's got a six and a half year old kid. He just stays home all day alone. Golly. It's really bad. It's really bad. Oh, you know, she has like a web, she has like a webcam. Wow, a six and a half year old. Steve, um, in your clinic, are are you having issues with staff because of childcare? Uh, sure, uh, and yes, we do have that. And but a different problem that we've had is the younger people that go party at the beach and then want to come back. So we've had a couple of them that partied hardy, got positive, had to spend a couple of weeks, and so it's we're, it's more concerned about what they do at their off time. Uh, but we we talk to them about it all the time. But technically, you can't make a rule about what people do. You you can just say, look, if you go on vacation, you got to be tested when you come back. That's about all you can do. But you can't tell people don't party or don't go to the beach or uh, it's actually not you know it's it's not legal to do that it's it's, it's good but the child care thing is an enormous issue nationwide i heard a piece I, I was working out just before this program and i was listening to npr and, and there was a big piece on that and and it was just the the, the data that 10% of childcare is available. There's a nationwide shortage of childcare. So the public childcare, uh, many of them are closed. The, the budget is under tremendous pressure in every single state uh, for the childcare uh, piece. So uh, that's just very concerning. You know, the book, the book that talent's overrated, it's about time on task, had that piece about the Na the National Hockey League, that the kids that had birthdays in certain right. months excelled right. because they got an additional year. Now, think about what happens to this whole cohort of kids that are right. seniors in high school. What happens to them? You know, are they going to get in the college they want? Are they going to be able to perform when they get there with a year of, of frankly, of, of, of less intense Waste. education? It's just terrible. I, I, I'm more... I, and then the, the 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 future of of these universities with with no uh, income from from uh, or decreased income from tuition is a tremendous problem. 
uh, they, they, they were, I mean, they, the rates that were going up, 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 uh, I think it's a 200% increase in the last 20 years in tuition. And, and now with the loss of that figure, what do you do with these mammoth physical plants and all these high salaries of the faculty? What happens to all that? I, it's, I don't know. It's very concerning. Yeah. There's, there's such a continual effect. I mean, the trickle-down effect from this is just enormous and especially on local businesses you know i mean you just see it the local businesses are really struggling and it's sometimes hard for us in the healthcare industry when we are as busy as ever or close to as busy as ever to realize until you go to the mall or you go do something you realize half the stores are closed in a mall in the main mall in town and it's just it's shocking to see how many places are just boarded up and not coming back well, I'm, yeah. I've, I've been single for many, many years, and, and I went out. To, the, the only thing I did, I guess you'd call it recreation, was eat dinner at a nice restaurant. You know, just blow in there, sit at the bar, don't drink, and and every one of those restaurants is closed. I have not sat set foot in a restaurant since the last week in February. So I cook at home by myself. I have I, I work out all my life, and now I bought all this weightlifting equipment and put it in my little tiny guest bedroom in my apartment, and that's where I work out. So there's zero social interaction. You go to the clinic, you go to the operating room, and you go home. So, what about you, Amy? Are you doing anything out and about, or are you staying pretty much locked and confined? It's interesting. You know, so, I mean, for the phase of life I'm in, right, I have, a, I have middle school kids. I feel very... I, I feel very safe at work, right? I have great PPE. I never take it off. I have no worry. You know, after the initial, you know, the beginning now for months, I don't feel scared about getting sick at work. My biggest risk is from my kid. It's really funny. They're the risk because it's really difficult to contain them for months and months and months and then developmentally, that's a problem. And this, you know, speaks to what you're talking about, Steve. I mean, child care is a problem. Having kids be compliant is a huge problem. They can't, they can't keep a mask on for eight hours. It's not a thing. So if I get it, it's going to be for my kids, ironically, you know, even though I see 70 patients a day, that's not the problem. So, you know, um, so we, I am limited and we, we've been very good on the weekend, but my kids are not able to be limited. It's not, it's not good for their mental health. So I guess effectively, secondarily, I'm not limited. Well, yeah, I was curious, John, what do you think about to... meetings? Like, at what point do you think we are going to have real live meetings? It should be like, hey, put on an N95 and get on a commercial airplane. Do you think that's coming in 2020, 2021, 2022? What do you think? You know, it's very interesting because I went to the first meeting I've gone to since this all started. Uh, you and did? It was our state, state society meeting. Mm -hmm. And they had it in Louisville. They had social distancing. Everybody wore masks. I mean, everybody, it was a huge room. And literally, we had about 30 people there. And everyone was 15 to 20 feet apart and you kept your mask on through the entire thing. And I gave an hour and a half talk with a mask on, you know, for the wow. entire thing. And it was odd, but it felt really good to be in person and to be able to see people react as you're giving a talk and to have your slides malfunction and to be on a timer and just all of these things that you just don't appreciate. So I think state meetings may actually kind of start up. Small group meetings may start up. The real problem with larger meetings is the travel component, you know, and I can tell you, I just don't feel good about getting on an airplane. You know, it just is an uncontrolled environment. Too many pictures of airplanes that are full. I don't trust the airline industry to do the right thing and not choose money and profits over safety. 
And I want so, to come, um, John, John, let me comment on airplanes just for a half a second. Sure. I've been flying jets a long time, and, and I only fly on my own airplane now to go places uh, to do for research stuff and, and to go up to NEI or to go to Alcon uh, or to see my kids. Anyhow, uh, so I know a bit. I, I've been lo really looking at how the air handling works on airplanes in, in corporate air, in not just corporate, but commercial aircraft. So the air enters uh, in my airplane, for example, in the front, and it leaves in the back. And so, uh, so for me, sitting in the cockpit, just fine. Air flows that way. But think about it. The person in front of you, if the air is flowing out the back, so there isn't a recirculating air problem. There's air traveling along the cabin. So a guy sneezes four rows in front of you. If the air is going south in the airplane, you're going to be exposed to that. And that's my concern. And so, in, and there's no way around that in an airplane. You can't change that. that you, you would have to recertify the airplane and rebuild the OHVAC to have a system where there is egress from air from each local site. It literally flows through the whole cabin and out the back. Uh, that is so interesting. So if you, do you think if you're in row one, that's, that seems reasonably safe? You're, you're better off in row one. Wow. Well, would you do it? Would you sit in row one? Would you sit in row one now? Would you think that would be safe? I, I'm try I haven't been on an airliner for a couple of years. And, uh, and obviously where it fits is for me is international, but all these meetings got canceled anyhow. So, right. you know, your retina club jewels can end, so on and so forth. And uh, so we'll have to see. I, and, and, you know, John's question about when is it going to start again? Who knows? I mean, is it a year? Is it two years? Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody knows. You know, one thing I will say on a positive note is, is that all these meetings are for the most part going virtual. And I probably wouldn't have gone to your retina this year, but now that it's virtual and it's in early October, that's going to be a meeting I'm going to sign up for. And I'm going to watch the talks, you know, ASRS, um, they did a great job with it virtually. So I, I feel like the access is every bit as good virtually to the talks and the information. What I miss is the social interaction, seeing people, you know, getting to talk to people about what they think about talks. What do you think, Amy? When do you think you will feel comfortable going back to a meeting? I would feel absolutely fine, as you said, giving a talk in a room, even with a couple hundred people, as long as I, I had, I had, you know, a good quality mask. I typically wear two masks, you know, two masks. I'd feel fine. It's the, it's the commercial airline. I don't feel good about it. I, I don't, I agree with everything you said, John, even in row one, row, seat 1A, I don't feel great about it. If I was on a commercial airliner, I'd wear an N95 mask and I would not eat. I literally would not eat yes. or drink. I'd just wait yeah. till I got off the airplane. Yeah. So, yeah. Steve, you do a lot of speaking. When do you think is going to be the next in-person meeting that we're going to have? Golly, I don't know. A year? Long time. And just as a final question for each of you all, um, let's say a vaccine is available in early 2021, March 2021, and they think it has 80% efficacy, but we only have a limited amount of testing on it, and they're going to offer it to healthcare professionals first. Amy, are you going to take that vaccine, or are you going to continue to mask and avoid the vaccine? That was a great question. I think um, I was explaining this to family members who are lay people the other day. I, I think something like the B of U story is instructive, right? You can have a product that makes it all the way through phase three and problems arise in phase four, right? There's, there's ample data across all of medicine to explain that. Rare problems do happen in the, in the phase four setting that don't happen in the phase three. I don't want to be the first person to get it or the last person to get it. 
is kind of my mantra, right? So I, I think I would wait a couple months. Uh, to, to, to Amy's point, my middle daughter's a family physician, volunteered to go to Nepal some years ago, got a meningitis vaccination, and almost immediately got a non-demyelizing form of Guillain-Barre, barely could walk, uh, finally got four injections of IgG, got anaphylactic shock, and reversed it, uh, believe it and it went away. But, but uh, uh, we have dominantly inherited cyclical neutropenia. My white counts like 900 every four or five weeks. So I, I'm really kind of concerned about taking a vaccine to, for the safety issues that Amy raised. Um, so I think plaster that mask on and I look better with a mask on anyhow. So there you go. <laughs> There's no better way to end it than that. Listen, Amy and Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. I want you guys to stay safe. I want to thank everyone who tuned in to New Retina Radio Back to Practice. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thank you again for watching. Thank you. Thanks, John. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.